Okay, a few hours from now, most of us will be sitting in front of a TV screen watching the Super Bowl. And if you're a decent human being, you'll be rooting against the Patriots. And by that, it's not because I'm for Atlanta as much as that I'm against uh, Tom Brady. Uh, it's just that to me, Tom Brady, it's just he's so perfect, it's annoying, right? Like he's, he's a good quarterback and he's going to go to the Hall of Fame and he's successful and he seems like a good guy and Shainu thinks he's good looking and so I can't stand the guy at all. I, I can't stand him. So you're going to watch to see what the outcome is going to be to see if maybe the Falcons can pull this off. But imagine that you were watching the game and you knew how it was going to turn out. If you knew what the score was going to be, I'd imagine that would change how you'd watch tonight's game. For example, that happened to me earlier this season. In week three of the NFL season, the Eagles were playing. They had won the first two games. By then, we had already announced that the Eagles were going to win the Super Bowl. And so week three, they were playing the Steelers. And since they had won the first two games, we were really excited. And I remember we had two services at church. It was going to be an afternoon game. We had a meeting after church. And so we taped the game. And I remember walking out with my ears closed, telling everyone, don't tell me what happened. Don't tell me what happened. Uh, I watched it at Binu's house. And we start watching the game. Early in the first quarter, I had turned on my phone looked at something I shouldn't have by accident, and there it was. The Eagles beat the Steelers 34-3. to Now, listen, I still watched the game, and I still loved every minute of it. I cheered when they caught. I, I cheered when the defense stopped them, but there was a difference because of what I knew. And that was simply that when everybody else in the room was anxiously biting their fingernails on the fourth down in the fourth quarter... I had no worries at all, because in my head, I was thinking to myself, this is going to turn out perfectly fine. I, I know how this ends. Everything's going to be fine. We win. You have nothing to worry about. Knowing the end changed how I went through it in the present. In Mark 13, Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the end in order that it might shape how we go through the present. That's the point of the passage. He's not trying to pique your curiosity and give you these end time riddles so that you could be uh, 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 obsessed with charts about the end time. He's trying to give you a glimpse of how the game ends so that it might shape how you go through the present. This chapter is about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the present in light of the end. That's what he wants to teach here. Now, as you heard Binu read all of Mark 13... You have undoubtedly already sensed this is a beast of a chapter. This is a thick, dense, at times complicated, at times confusing chapter. In fact, as I was getting ready to study this passage, I, I read one commentator who, whose opening line was that there was no passage in the gospel, according to Mark, more problematic than this one, which is what every preacher loves to hear as he's getting ready <laughs> To preach. In fact, I should tell you, I, I read a number of commentaries and listened to a bunch of scholars, people who are brilliant, who love Jesus, who believe the Bible from cover to cover, and I should let you know, they all seem to have slightly different interpretations about this passage, right? Pe people who love the Lord, who believe the scriptures, and yet at different points in this passage, in this chapter, they land in different places about what exactly Jesus is saying. And as I want you to hear that, I want you to know that shouldn't be a reason for us to panic. One of the things you'll learn, one of the things we've learned as we read through the scriptures is that God has spoken, but he in his own wisdom has not chosen to make everything clear the same way. 
that there are some things in the scriptures that are clearer than others. Uh, one person said it, there are the things in the scriptures that are the main things and they're the plain things. And those things which are main and plain, we should hold with closed hands, with closed fists. We'll fight over them. We'll divide over them. So if you want to know, is Jesus God? Did he die? Did he rise again? Is he coming back? We hold these things as main and plain with a closed hand. And then there are other places where Christians who love the Lord, who believe in the scriptures, disagree. And they do so with humility. That's how we should approach Mark 13 as well. We should approach this with humility. If nothing else, because part of this chapter is about Jesus coming. And if you think about it, remember the first time Jesus came. They had a Bible full of prophecies. A Bible full of what to expect when the Messiah would come. Prophecies about Bethlehem. Prophecies about the King of David. And yet the way he came stumped them all. With all that they knew... He, he still surprised them all. And so it should humble us as we await his coming again to read this with expectancy, keeping the main things the main things and the plain things the plain things, but humbly, knowing that he's saying some things that are here difficult for us to understand. So in Mark 13, Jesus is going to talk to us about the end. You want to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be walking through this chapter together. Mark chapter 13. He's going to talk to us about the end and we should be almost asking the end of what? And that would be a good question to ask because he's actually going to tell us the end of two things here. He's going to tell us the end of the temple in Jerusalem and the end of time, the world as we know it. And in fact, that's sometimes what makes this passage so difficult, is it's sometimes hard to distinguish when is he talking about the end of the temple in Jerusalem, or when is he talking about the end of the world as we know it, or both. And that's what makes it somewhat tricky and challenging. What's clear is we need God's help as we read this passage. So pray with me for a moment. Let's ask him for that help, trusting that he can provide it to us. God, we pause as students of the Bible, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as those who want this morning to hear from you, who trust that you, by your Spirit, decided this passage was in the Bible for our present good. So come, make it plain to us what you will, and help us to keep what is main and plain that way, and help us to be transformed in the present as we hear Jesus speak of the end. Come help our minds and our ears and our hearts and let your spirit speak to us and transform us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want you to know that Mark 13 isn't randomly inserted into Mark's account. So it's not as if Mark is saying, you know, we interrupt this, your regularly scheduled program to bring you this random teaching on the end times. No, this is a very logical connection to what has come and what will come. Jesus has been talking about the temple. Jesus has been in the temple. And so Mark 13 fits that way. Let, let me remind you the flow. In Mark 11, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And if you remember, he went into the temple and it says he looked around. He sort of surveyed everything. He inspected everything. He evaluated everything. And, and to find out what came about of his evaluation, you had to wait till the next day. Because the next day, if you remember, you get a clear picture of what Jesus thought of the temple. He's walking to the temple and he sees a fig tree. Do you remember that? It, from the distance, there's leaves, there's all the signs of fruit. But when he gets up close, he finds this thing is lifeless and fruitless and barren. 
and he pronounces a curse on the fig tree and it withers down to its roots. And when you wonder what is that about, suddenly we connect the dots and go, that was sort of a, a drama, a parable, if you will, of the temple. Because when he got up close to the temple, he saw from far this thing had all the signs of religious life and spirituality, but up close it was lifeless and fruitless and barren. And if the fig tree with its big empty show is going to wither down to its roots and the temple is a picture of the fig tree, then you connect the dots and go, what's about to happen to the temple? And Jesus walks into the temple and he clears shop. He throws tables and throws chairs and stops people from walking. And then in chapter 12, we hear this long series of interrogation of Jesus in the temple. The religious leaders who should have welcomed God in the flesh coming to the temple have nothing but question after question after question. So much so that 12 ends, if you remember, with Jesus condemning the big empty show religion of the scribes sitting across the treasury, pointing out the rich people and commending to us a poor widow. Now, chapter 13 begins with they are leaving the temple. In fact, that's how 13 starts. He's going to walk out of the temple. And, and I want you to know, even that simple detail is significant. Jesus is walking out of the temple. He's leaving God in the flesh. We at home have been doing family worship, and the part of the Bible we've been reading at home is the Old Testament stories, and we've actually been in the book of 1 Kings. And ironically, this week itself, the stories we were reading at home with the kids was about how Solomon, David's son, built the temple for the first time. And he built this opulent, grand temple, and when Solomon dedicates the temple, the glory of the Lord fills the temple so thick, nobody can even go in. It's so glorious. In fact, God says to Solomon, listen... I want you to know, if you and your son stay with me, walk with me, then I will be here, my heart will be here, my eyes will be towards this place forever. But as far back as 1 Kings, he told Solomon, but if you don't, if you and your sons go astray, I want you to know this thing will become a heap of ruins. And then as you read through the Old Testament story, you find that Solomon and his sons and Israel did go astray. So much so that a prophet named Ezekiel comes and he has this vision and in his vision the glory of God, the same glory that had filled the temple, now rises up and departs from the temple, leaves towards the east side and rests on a mountain there and God has left his temple. And Mark 13 starts with, here is Jesus, God in the flesh, who has just pronounced through parables and in action judgment on the temple, who told you the fig tree is going to wither down to its roots, and now Jesus, God in the flesh, is leaving the temple, mind you, never to return. And we read in Mark 13, As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The disciples are walking out of the temple and they sound like tourists, right? They go, Jesus, do you see this structure in all its brilliance and in all its beauty? And, and I want you to know, you wouldn't blame them for saying that. If you were there, you would have said the same thing. This was a magnificent building. I, I remember two summers ago, we went and visited the Taj Mahal. I saw it for the first time. And I remember the people who had seen it before telling me about it and they hyped it up to no end. And in fact, they assured me they weren't even scared of hyping it up because they were sure that it would live up to the hype. And I can tell you, it totally did. I was 
breathtaking by this thing. In fact, so much so that when we were ready to leave, because the kids kept whining and whining, and so we had to finally leave. When we did, I walked out backwards because I didn't want to stop staring at the thing. I couldn't turn my back on it for a second. It was that magnificent. From everything I've read, the temple in Jerusalem would have been more so. The way they spoke about the temple was that it wasn't that Jerusalem had a temple, but that the temple had Jerusalem. Like that was the center. It was what everyone came to see. It's white stone and gold and the sun would radiate off and blind you. They had massive stones so big, the historians tell us, one stone would have been 40 to 60 feet, weighing millions of pounds, just one of them. And Herod the Great had rebuilt the temple so that 12 football fields could fit in one of its courts. This thing was massive. So the disciples say, Jesus, look at these wonderful stones in this wonderful building and listen to how Jesus responds. Verse 2, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone on another that will not be thrown down. I mean, the very center of everything of God's people and Jesus saying this thing is going to be a heap of ruins, rubble. It's going to wither down to its roots. Not one stone will be left on another. Now, you can imagine that kind of thing would bring about some questions. And that's what the disciples had. Look at verse 3 and 4. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So listen to that. Four of the disciples come back. They've gone to the other side of the temple. They're looking at it now, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, we've just got a question. About that, drop, that bomb you dropped back there, about the temple being destroyed, how no stone is going to be left on the other, when is that going to happen, and what should we be looking for? Right? When is that going to happen, and what should we be looking for? Now listen, Seven Mile Road, you can't miss this, because if you're going to try and understand this chapter, this is key. What are the disciples asking Jesus about? They're asking him about when the temple, what he said in verse 2, is going to be destroyed, and what are the signs that are going to accompany that. And that's important because then you understand that what Jesus says next is in response to that question. It's about the temple. And that's important because if you grew up in church, a lot of the stuff that you hear Jesus say next sounds like stuff that's about the end of time. When in reality, he's answering a question that they've asked about when's the temple going down and what are the signs associated with that? So I want to submit to you that what you read from verse 5 all the way to verse 23, at least, maybe even some would say all the way to 31, is all in relation to this question. When will the temple go down and what will the signs be? Verse 5 to 23, maybe even all the way to 31, is connected to what's going to happen, what should we be looking for, and when will the temple be destroyed? So Jesus is going to answer. They want to know when's it going down and what's going to be around it. And Jesus starts in verse 5 and following by actually telling them what the signs won't be. He starts with, let me tell you a bunch of stuff, and none of that is the sign that the temple is going to be destroyed. He starts talking for the sake of time. I won't read it all now, but he starts telling them, listen, people are going to come and claim to be the Messiah. So you're going to have lots of false Christ coming. 
And wouldn't you know, after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, there was lots of false messiahs. He says then there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Wouldn't you know there were wars and rumors of wars? He says there's going to be earthquakes and famines. And through all these things which in those years after his ascension happened, Jesus says, look at verse 7. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Right? There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes and famines. There's going to be false messiahs. But these things must happen. The world can feel like it's out of control. It's not. God is sovereignly in control. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, he even says, these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. This is just the early contractions. They're still 15 minutes apart here. Nothing is about to happen yet. You have more time, he's saying. These aren't the signs of the end. This is just life in a broken and fallen world. Now listen, Jesus is saying this to them, and in saying this to them, I think he's freeing them from calculating dates and from interpreting and misinterpreting signs and global events and reading into every earthquake. He's saying to them, you don't have to be preoccupied with interpreting every world event as if that is the sign of the end. Now he's saying it to them then, but I would say this is helpful for us now because Christians in every age have tried to connect all the dots and said that earthquake there means this event here and this person coming to power and that war over there means these things and connect the dots and saying so that means Jesus is coming in six hours, right? And, and, and Christians have done that and Jesus is saying here you, you don't have to do that. We have this preoccupation. I, I read this great article this week that said that since every president from FDR on, Christians have said, that's the Antichrist, right? From Franklin Roosevelt on, all the way down, I mean, Clinton and Bush, the only exception was Gerald Ford. For some reason, maybe Ford was just a nice guy and nobody thought bad of him, but outside of that, Clinton and Bush and Obama, and you can imagine the present one and all the rest, every single one of them, they were sure. This connecting of the dots, and Jesus is saying to us, I think through them, listen, you don't have to be preoccupied with your end time charts and your calendars and your dates and selling all your stuff and moving to a plane and looking to the sky because Jesus actually says there's something else that you will be preoccupied with. Namely, you will be preoccupied with proclaiming the gospel and suffering for my sake and bearing witness for me before kings and governors, you will be preoccupied with seeing the gospel go to all the nations, and you will be preoccupied with seeing the gospel succeed. Look at verse 9 and following. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You are not to be preoccupied with interpreting all the signs regarding the end of the temple because you will have much gospel ministry and work to do. And friends, if you read the book of Acts, I want you to know this is exactly what happened. They were beaten in synagogues. 
The disciples did bear witness for Jesus before governors and kings. Persecution did come, and when it did, God was with them, and so much so that the Holy Spirit did give them in that hour the words they should say. So much so we read in Acts 4 that the disciples who just a few weeks ago had ran for their lives when Jesus was in trouble were the same ones who now rejoiced that they were being persecuted. And when they spoke, their persecutors were amazed and they said to themselves, how can these uneducated fishermen speak like this? Why? Because the Holy Spirit was with them just as Jesus said he would be. So much so that the gospel, it could be said, went to all the nations. Do you notice that? That's a troubling verse for us. What does Jesus mean here to say, after I'm gone, before the temple is destroyed, the gospel, verse 10, will be proclaimed to all nations? Did we not have a missionary on this stage last week telling us that there were unreached people groups in the world? Thousands of them. So what does Mark mean to say that the gospel has been preached to all the nations when we know there are thousands of nations and ethnicities people groups who have not yet heard the gospel. I think what Mark has in mind here is to speak sort of the way that Paul will speak in other parts of the New Testament. Right, when Mark is writing this, there are whole continents that haven't been discovered. So the gospel hasn't come to the Native American peoples on the North American continent. But when Mark is writing this, he's writing the way that Paul would write in the New Testament. Paul will say things like Romans 16. He'll say, this gospel has been proclaimed to all the nations. Or, or he'll say in Colossians 1, this gospel is growing and bearing fruit around the whole world. Meaning the entire world that they knew of, the Roman Empire down to its edges, this gospel was going forth. The world that they knew, this gospel was going to all the nations. And it happened. Acts says so. Last week, Pastor Benu preached to us about an Ethiopian eunuch. So that within the first century, after Jesus died and rose again, before the temple fell, an Ethiopian man comes to Jerusalem, hears the gospel, and the Ethiopians find access to the gospel. If you talk to my parents, they tell you by 52 AD, Thomas came to India as well, right? This gospel is going all over the world, just as Jesus said it would. So Jesus is saying, listen... All these things will happen, but it's not yet the end of the temple. None of these are the signs. This is what it means to follow me in a broken and fallen world. But here's the sign that verse 2, the stones coming down, is about to happen. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those of you who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then in 15, all the way to 23, says, then if you're up on a roof, don't go back in. If you're in the field, don't go over to your house. Just run. Pray that it won't happen in winter. Terrible times are coming. So Jesus is saying, listen, there is coming something dreadful, judgment on Israel and Jerusalem. But here's the sign. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, parentheses, Mark inserts, let the reader understand. I have to tell you, as I read this the first time this week, I burst out laughing at that one, right? I wanted to be like, let the reader understand. Mark, this reader does not understand anything you're saying, right? What, what does that mean? Mark is assuming here, if I say this, you'll know what it means. Well, even though this term, the abomination of desolations, did that for me, Mark knows that his readers would know exactly what that was. That when he first wrote this, and he wrote, listen, 
When you see the abomination of desolation standing where you ought not to be, let the reader understand, then you know it's time to flee. It turns out this term originally came from the prophet Daniel. And Daniel had prophesied that there was going to come this abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be. And in Mark's day, everyone knew exactly the fulfillment of that prophecy. Everyone knew Daniel was talking about this thing that happened in 167 BC. What it was, was there was a Syrian general named Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes into the temple, fights this battle, and then desecrates the temple. So much so that on the altar, he erects a statue for Zeus in the temple. And then he orders that pigs, unclean animals for the Gentiles, be offered as sacrifices in the temple. And from what I've read, for three years, no one worshipped in the temple. It was an abomination. It was a desecration. That was what happened. In fact, our Jewish friends would be able to tell us all about this. This is part of what our Jewish friends celebrate with Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the undoing of all that Antiochus Epiphanes did. It was when they regained the temple. And so Jesus is saying, listen, when that kind of thing that you all know about happens again in the temple, you know it's time to flee. And listen, friends, that's exactly what happens. He says in verses 15 and following, it will come a time of tribulation like you haven't seen before. Oh, God forbid that it comes during winter because getting out of Judea will be hard at that time. God forbid that you're pregnant or nursing, traveling at that time will be so much harder, so pray. And it happens exactly as he says. It's sort of like this. If I told you, where were you on 9-11? I'd say, other than our children, every single one of us know exactly where we were, exactly what we were doing. Because when that building crumbled, it was so seismic and earth-shattering to us, it is etched into our brain. Well, the first century equivalent of 9-11 was A.D. 70. If you told a Jew about A.D. 70, they would tell you exactly where they were and exactly what they were doing when that happened. When a Roman general named Titus walked into Jerusalem, fought battle, and the Jerusalem temple was destroyed, so much so the walls came down, such a pile of rubble, you wouldn't have even believed there was a temple there before. Everybody knew it happened exactly as he said. And Jesus, before it happens, is warning them. Right? He's telling them, verse 23, this is why I'm telling you, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So much so that he'll tell a parable about a fig tree, and then in verse 30, he'll tell them, truly, I'm telling you, all of this is going to happen in your generation. All of this is going to happen in your generation. What Jesus is doing is what? He's pastoring them. He's shepherding his disciples. He's preparing his disciples. He's not piquing their interest in end times so that they can draw charts. He's shaping their present in light of the end. He's shaping how they are to live now in light of the end. So here's what we've said so far. What Jesus answers here is what they asked in verse 2. And he's telling them the temple is going to be destroyed in your lifetime. You don't have to panic when earthquakes come, when new politicians rise to power. You don't have to panic over global events. It will be hard to be my follower, but I want you to know this is part of what it means to follow me in this broken and fallen world. I want you to know God will be with you. 
The Holy Spirit will give you words to say. The gospel will spread despite persecution, maybe even because of it. And moreover, if you remain faithful to the end, you will be saved. But Mark 13 doesn't end with Jesus just telling those disciples about the end of the temple. Before he ends, he's going to tell all disciples, including us, about the end of everything. Right? It's almost as if he's saying, look, if what's coming to the temple is seismic and earth-shattering, I want you to know there's something else coming that is even more seismic and more earth-shattering. And that is when the Son of Man will come, when Jesus will return. You see, it matters because till then, the way you got to God was to go to the temple. All the people gathered at the temple to get into the presence of God. But in AD 70, there's no more temple. But now, verse 24 and on, it will be that we are gathered from every corner of the earth, and where we go is now to Jesus. Where we go to get into God's presence is to Jesus. Ultimately now, it's not that we'll go to the temple to get into God's presence, but that God's presence will come to us when Jesus returns, when he comes again. And he wants to finish the chapter by telling you that. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day, right? Notice that. Concerning that day. Till now, in Mark 13, he's been talking about in those days, this will happen and this will happen. In those days. But now there's a shift in verse 32. But concerning that day. What day? That, that last day. That final day. That last hour. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. Listen, whereas there were signs that could connect you and prepare you for the coming end of the temple, Jesus is saying, concerning that last day, though, when he will come, that final hour, there are no signs. No one knows. He says the angels don't know. The Son on earth doesn't know. Only the Father in heaven knows. Listen, what that means for us is now you know the next time the guy gets on the radio or on Christian TV to tell you exactly the date Jesus is coming, you can go. Jesus has told us. No one knows. It is an amazing thing how many hundreds of thousands of people have looked towards certain dates when Jesus has told us no one knows. It's completely unexpected. He will come for sure, but when he comes... No one knows for sure, right? And so, since it's unknown, we are not to be preoccupied with calculating dates and connecting global events. Instead, what does Jesus want us to do? In this short section here, you've heard it a few times. Did you catch it? What he wants us to do? Since no one knows, here's what you're to do. You're to stay awake. Four times he says it in this passage. Verse 33 be on guard, keep awake. Verse 34, stay awake. 
Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What Jesus is doing is giving us a glimpse of the end so that it might shape how we go through it in the present. And what are we to do in the present? We are to stay awake, spiritually awake. Nobody knows the hour, he says. It could be at night, at midnight, when the rooster crows in the morning. Literally, those times were literally 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to 12 a.m., 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Why? Because that's the hours no one's awake. And he's trying to say to you, stay awake. Be vigilant. Be alert. He could come at any moment. Here's what this passage is saying. Believe this in your heart. He could come before I finish this, I was hoping, <laughs> this sentence. He could come. Are you living like that's real? That he could come. So stay awake. He's telling you, don't nod off now. Don't sleep. Don't sleep in your sin because he could come. Don't drift off and be drowsy about the things of God. He could come now. And what if he should come and find you asleep, he says. So the doorkeeper of the house must live alert and awake because he could come. How much time will you give yourself to drift and backslide and be hardened in heart? For he could come at any moment and no one knows. So you are to stay awake. Don't be drowsy on him. Be alert. Don't drift off living like you're the owner of this life. You're a steward. You're a doorkeeper. And the master of the house could come at any moment. God forbid he should come and find you spiritually sleepy, drowsy. And so he's throwing cold water on your face, shaking your soul, saying, how long will you slumber? He could come, so stay awake. He is not telling you some random end time prophecy. He is trying to shape how you live in the present. If the end of Jerusalem's temple was seismic and cosmic, what will it be when the Son of Man comes and the whole thing is done? And listen, do you notice in verse 24 and 25, I'm not going in there now. It, it, if you read it, it's the language of, and then the sun is darkened and the moon no longer gives light and the stars fall out of the sky and the whole earth shakes. It's this imagery of almost all hell is breaking loose. And that's exactly right. When he comes, if you do not know Christ, it will be as if all hell is breaking loose. Verse 25, however, is a picture of, and then the angels will come and gather all the saints from every corner and gather them to Jesus. 24, all hell is breaking loose. 25, heaven is breaking in. And the end will be one of the two based on where you are with Christ. Are you not in Christ? Then the end means all hell is going to break loose. Are you in Christ? Then the end means heaven is finally breaking in. This, the coming of Jesus can be a, a frightening thing, a scary thing. The stars falling out of the sky. But for the Christian, the Christian knows there was another day which the earth turned dark. And the earth shook. And Mark will tell us about that in chapter 15. That when Jesus was on the cross, the earth went dark. And the earth shook. And judgment did fall. But for the Christian, it fell on him. Hell fell on him so that heaven might break on us. 
This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And you are being told it today so that you might wake up. You are being warned today so that you might wake out of your slumber. For when he comes, it will either be hell breaking loose or heaven breaking in based on where you are in Christ. And he has received judgment so that heaven might break in on you. There is good news. He is coming back. Be awake to that. I want you to hear that for your present day. When you struggle with your sin and you hate this stuff about yourself and you wonder when will this weakness go away, stay awake. For the day is coming when you will see him and the scripture says when we see him, we will be like him. When there's relational pain and angst and you wonder when will the day come when there's no more bitterness and no more misunderstandings and there's harmony, stay awake. For the day will come when God's people will be known and know one another and there will be love and no more slander or gossip or misunderstandings or relational friction. When you have to drop friends off at the airport and bid them farewell because they're going to the other side of the world to preach the gospel and you long to be together, stay awake. For the day is coming when God's people will never say goodbye anymore. When your loved one is in the casket, or you're standing by the grave, or when you watch your parents aging and know that they won't be here forever, or when you watch your children aging and know that you won't be here forever, and when you long with all your heart that these relationships could stay intact forever, stay awake, for the day is coming when those who are in Christ will never have a goodbye again. When you sit in this room and you sing with God's people and you look around and your heart is filled and then you wonder and imagine what will it sound like when all the peoples of all the tribes and all the tongues and all the nations are around the throne of Jesus. What will that song sound like? Stay awake for it's coming. It's nearer this moment than it was one moment before because the sun will come unexpectedly but he will surely come. And when you're thinking sane, In your sanest moment, when you realize more than the relationships you have with your children or your spouse or your friends or your family, when you think sane and go, there is a lover of my soul I have not yet seen, but I will see him. Sema wrote, in one unhurried moment, would you let that wash over you? You will see Jesus. You will see him. So stay awake. What will that be like? And he is telling us, listen, the end is coming. On Jerusalem, that's going to be seismic, but for all of us, so stay awake. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks 